I don't. I haven't written an intro, so I'm going to have to make something up. Ian Winwood, you're good with intros. How do I start um, talking about your book, Bodies? It's it's a book about how the music industry makes people ill and can make people ill. How the music industry can ruin and disrupt lives, and how from working it while working in the music industry, I found a way to to, to damage my own life. I suppose. And it's a look at both of those stories, really. As I say in the sort of final chapter, prior to writing it, I assumed that the stories would run in parallel. But it seems that I got better, and the music industry hasn't improved as much as certainly I believe that it had at the outset of the book, and and definitely, absolutely not as much as it needs to. That's That would be my, my summation. Yeah, that's a good elevator pitch. The title is Bodies... Life and Death in Music. The author, Ian Winwood, has built a career which stretches back... Is it 20 years you've been doing this? No, I wish it were 20 years, Johnny. It's 30 years. Gosh. Three decades. So you started... We heard the crackle of vinyl at the very beginning, because this is 78, where I'm talking to 78 music critics, writers and fans. I call football writers football critics in the same way that I call music writers music critics, although... I don't know. I think music journalism has become a lifestyle journalism brand nowadays. People don't talk about right. semi-briefs, they talk about kind of haircuts. Hey, are we talking about music journalism, Johnny? Yes. I don't know if I would agree with that. I think what has absolutely changed um, is... Well, first of all, my job, the fundamentals of my job have changed very little. Uh, 30 years ago, actually 29 years ago, I sat down with uh, a a guy called Lane Staley, who was the singer in a band called Alice in Chains. He was terribly unwell. He was, I realize now, dope sick because he was a heroin addict. Um, A... The band's PR... the, the, The band's art second album, Dirt, had had just gone or was about to go double platinum in the US, which two is two million sales. The night before they played the Brixton Academy and filled that, they may have done multiple nights. I, 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 memory, my memory fails me there. The band were from Seattle, part of the you know that Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Nirvana, Seattle wave. In commercial term, terms, they were one of that big four. Um, so this was, you know top-rated, platinum-rated, you know, rock star that I was speaking to, I was told by the PR, it was strongly suggested to me by the PR uh, that I would not ask them about drugs. The album, for anyone that doesn't know, it wasn't that I was merely invading his private life. The album is essentially all about drugs and very hard drugs, which is, was advice I ignored and and ask continually about it the the affrontery of me doing this i'm struggling to find the word i actually want there but the audacity audacity, there you go uh of doing that earned me a lifetime ban from writing about any of the bands that this this pr agency represented and the piece went into print it is pretty much exactly the same now. If I were to interview i mean bands very rarely sell two million physical copies anymore 
But if I were to interview, you know, an emerging band, it doesn't have to be drugs. But I would sit down, especially if it was face to face, I would sit down with them and I would ask them whatever I wanted to ask them. They're not obliged to answer my questions, um, but uh, I am still at liberty to, to do so. It's not like film journalism where I'm sort of hustled in in seven or eight minutes, uh, you know, for an interview that lasts seven minutes and I'm one of, you know, 50 interview, interviewers that day. In that sense, the, the job has changed very little, which pleases me greatly. How it has changed, and, and here it's changed beyond all recognition. Back then, the the divide between the, the, the readership, the general public, if if, if you if you, if you like, I don't really like that, but for the purposes of discussion, and the journalists, the people who you know put bands on MTV, for example, or decided which bands got played on the radio, uh, which bands people heard. And from a music journalist point of view, which bands people read about, heard about, that was codified. There was a clear distinction between the, 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 those, two, those two bodies, between the readers, the listeners, and the people that provided the material. And now that's completely gone. Everybody now can be a music journalist if they want to be. They can't necessarily be a professional music journalist, uh, but they can be a music journalist. You know, they can write their own reviews. They can have their sub stack if they want. Um, they can have a website where they run their own reviews. And I, for the most part, I, I, I welcome that. One thing I particularly like about it is that I am no longer responsible for, for, for telling people what it is I think that I should listen to. Because the thing about music journalists is we get too much music and um, we are required to make opinions at too fast a speed and we miss things, or at least I do, you know? So that was always the weakest part of my game. Being a critic, it, it was always the weakest part of my game. And the part of my game that I, that I liked the least... The part of my gig that I liked the most... The same doesn't quite hold true for live reviews because live reviews are kind of fleeting moments. You know, you can't go back and watch a, a concert 15 times to see if you're missing something. What you see is what you get. Albums have all kinds of, you know, hidden depths, you know. Um, so that I, I, I don't really like that aspect. Or I'm, I like it least. Um, what I do like about the, the job is writing about the people that make the music and bringing their stories to life. And if music journalism, good music journalism, I'm not necessarily saying I am a good music journalist. Well, I do, um, so tough. Well that's, very, well, that's very nice of you. But, but you know, the good music journalists, uh, I think that that is still a noble profession because we bring stories to life and we do so, or they do so, with a degree of skill that that, that that is is has been you know it might be raw talent but it's it's also been developed and that's not something that I sound elitist here that's the worst crime in the world these days isn't it sounding elitist I'm going to just come out that yeah. that's not that that that's not something that, that everyone can do and it's not something that I could do particularly well I mean I guess I had a, a raw talent for it when I was you know 20 
years old. I started, actually, I was 19 when I started, uh, you know, paid journalism. Um, you know, I had the, the raw kindling, but it's only through, you know, literally the decades of taking what I do quite seriously, actually, and learning how to do it well. And in that regard, it, it, there, there are, you know, a number of fine writers. Music journalism has changed because music has changed, you know? Music is still an, 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 an essential part of many people's lives, but it is no longer the vanguard, you know? In 1976, if you, if you had something to say and you wanted to say it and you wanted to say it urgently... The quickest way of doing that was was forming a punk band and sticking, you know, it, it, that was the fastest way of getting your identity, your voice into the into the bloodstream. That now seems glacially slow, glacially so. You can get your thoughts, you can make a, a TikTok video, you can write something that will go viral, you can, you know, there are hundreds of... That is the, so much faster uh, and so music now occupies a different space. And because of that, music journalism occupies a different space as well. It's still there. We're just not the, we're just not, we're just not the rock stars of the page anymore. Yep. Uh, the method of delivery has changed. Uh, although, like many broadsheet newspapers... Uh, the Telegraph have employed you as a rock critic. There's a great Neil McCormick who has also yeah. written a book. His book, I Was Bono's Doppelganger or Killing Bono, which I love. I love that book. Good stuff. Um, I'll tell him. Please do. Um, and because okay, he is U2's chronicler, cause, because he has been in the foothills with Bonio and the Edge uh, and the other two, Adam and Larry, for 40 yeah. odd years. And so he is able to longitudinally do a study much like Stuart McConey did with Blur, much like you should do with Biffy Clyro. And one of the things we'll get onto later is perhaps other books that you could write. But this one, Bodies, Life and Death in Music, it's about your life, it's about several lives and bodies that you have met along the way. Uh, recently, I just I must say for the listener, Ian Winwood has written pieces behind the Telegraph paywall, although it is very cheap to read them. The Undertones, The Scorpions... Uh, there's a piece about Billy Preston, an interview with the great Rob... Is it Halford or Holford? I never know. Oh, Halford. Halford. Yeah, Halford. Uh, Jar yeah. Wobble, whom I did meet once, not a fan of John Lydon. <laughs> and no. uh, the Johns of They Might Be Giants, who I love. And Yard Act. Uh, there is also a, a review of James Blunt. Perf seeing James Blunt do his greatest hit. Um, here's an example of how the music industry has changed. This is a guy who wrote his greatest hit on Carrie Fisher's piano. That's right. I love that That's story. Right. And James's yeah. kind of music is like 20% of his act now because he's like a stand-up and a Twitterer and an influencer and Ed Sheeran's best mate and a celebrity former armed service member. But what, what was it like seeing James Blunt, one of the very few musicians to actually earn money this century from music? Yeah, um, I, I mean, I'm sure there's more that, 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 that have earned money. They're, they're, it's, it's strange writing for the Telegraph. Well, no, ostensibly strange writing for the Telegraph. Let me get this right so I don't get fired. As a, as a, as a writing gig, I am given a remarkable amount of freedom to say whatever I please, really. 
And for the first time, I mean, I've been there for, for just probably actually three years this month. Previously, because because I'd made my bones on Kerrang, and Kerrang was the, the one magazine that I, that I longed to write for when I was a teenager. The voice of the underdog, Kerrang. The voice, the voice of the underdog, and I still write for Kerrang, um, which, is, which is both fabulous and slightly ridiculous at my age. Other sort of music magazines... Kind of, it's a bit like being an actor who only appears in horror movies, you know? So I was sort of typecast as, as the rock guy. And any music journalist worth their sodium will listen to all kind, different kinds of music. I landed at the Telegraph uh, and for the first time in what I might laughingly refer to as my career, they really didn't care whether or not I, you know, I, I was just a writer who, who wrote about music. So if I said to them, oh, can I, these are real examples, can I interview James Taylor, for example, or write a piece about Simon and Garfunkel's reunion concert at, at, uh, at Central Park in 1981, or can I interview Billy Bragg? You know, they, they, they just were like, yeah, great. I mean, they turned down some of my ideas, but my point being that, they, that I'm not re- restricted by what they believe my sort of lane is, for want of a slightly better term. So that's remarkably refreshing, incredibly, incredibly refreshing. The newspaper's politics are not my own, but that said, the, the, dealing with every, everyone that I've dealt with at the, at the Telegraph I and mean, the people that I deal with are, are, are talented and, and lovely people which is not always the case. So that's nice. And to, to finally return to the question that you asked about five minutes ago, Johnny, um, I was just asked if I would like to review James Blunt at Wembley Arena. And I said to my wife, would you like to go to this concert? And she was, oh, yeah, yeah, I would. And this is slightly, you know, we're, we're in, in a slight way, we're, we're cabs off the rank a little bit. Because I know that uh, Alexis Petridis, uh, the fine music critic at the, at the Guardian, he reviewed the show from Brighton two days earlier. So all you sort of have to do there is to pay attention and watch the show. There's a, there's a, a skill to writing fairly, I think, about something that you might not otherwise be interested in especially if that thing is easy, easy to deride and, in fact, has been widely derided. Uh, if someone is making a case for it but is doing so not very skillfully, they might write on the back foot and say, well, James Blunt has his, has his detractors, but I think, forget that. Just, you know, kind of say what you see. Um, and in fact, James Blunt sort of does that work for yeah. you because he's very self-deprecating. I was surprised to discover just how sparsely populated Wembley Arena was for that concert. And that's the first time I have seen, for anyone that, that, that's been to an arena show that's, that's not quite full or not full at all, you have these giant curtains that they bring down over sections of the seating. They had the, the curtains down all three sections, all, all, all three uh, banks of seating. So the floor was completely full. And the, and the curtains didn't go all the way down the three banks of seating, the, the stage being the fourth 
the fourth wall. Um, but they were sort of a good two-thirds or three, even three-quarters of the way down. I was hugely surprised that he didn't fill Wembley Arena. And in fact, probably had a Hammersmith Apollo's worth of people in there. So that was a big surprise to me. Yeah, just just um, to illustrate, Wembley Arena's about 12,000, Hammersmith Apollo's 3,500, 4,000? A little bit more than that now. Yeah. Uh, I think it's I think it's sort of... 3,900 with seats more than that if they take the seats out downstairs I don't I don't think James Blunt at the house with Apollo I imagine that will be seated downstairs I don't think they'd be anticipating much <laughs> yes. circle action yeah. and, I mean, it's, and it's quite nice because it helps me because I am a music journalist it, it helps me just kind of keep my mind clear of notions about what is cool music and what is uncool music. These these aren't helpful distinctions to draw as a, as a professional writer. You know, it's just, for me at least, I just find it really unhelpful. And it's strange at The Telegraph because after being sort of, you know, freed from, from being obliged to write about loud rock music all the time, I find myself wanting to write about loud rock music perhaps more than I otherwise would, you know? Uh, and I find myself just thinking, well, what's a good story? And writing about unfashionable band, quote-unquote, unfashionable band you mentioned the scorpions earlier you know it was me that wanted to write about those you know so that kind of they opened the door of what i saw as being a cage and then thought yeah actually do you know what? i quite liked being in that cage some of the time so i'll spend some time outside of it and some time inside of it but you know the, the, the month that i wrote the james blunt review um I, I, i'm sure it was the same month if not certainly the very same limited time period I interviewed Yard Act, who at the time were probably the coolest band in the country. Oh, they're so hip. They're so I went from, I, so I wrote about possibly the uncoolest artist in the country and the coolest band in the country at this moment in time. And I make no distinction between the two. And any, I think that any music journalist that does is mistaken. Hey, I put it no stronger than that. I read Carl Wilson. Carl Wilson of Slate magazine wrote an excellent book as part of the 33 and a third series about Let's Talk wow. About Love, the Celine Dion album. I read it when I was wow. about 21. And he said, look, we all know what Celine Dion is. We know what she stands for. It's, I think, basically, the two-word summary is Erzatz Schmaltz. That was what <clears throat> Celine Dion is. But... Millions of record sales, tugging on the heartstrings, over-singing every note. People like that kind of thing, and that's why someone like, I don't know, David Foster has a career. Clive Davis turns 90 uh, this weekend, and Clive Davis is, I would say he is the figure of the recorded... um, Jerry Wexler? He's one of the three figures in the recorded music industry. We're now over. The recorded music industry or the record business, is no longer. But there was music in the plains of Africa. There's been music everywhere. Music goes on. Commercialised music is what you've made your living writing about, and you write about the, the folk who do it in bodies, life and death in music. Uh, a lot of it is autobiography, and um, I suppose I'm going to phrase this, and I hope you don't... I hope. This comes across in the right way. Who took more drugs, you or Nick Kent? 
That's a good question. Because his book, The Dark Stuff, is scary. The amount of drug... He seems to take downers to get up, uppers to get down, and then just constantly, just years on drugs. Apathy for the Devil Um, was the book, rather. I I would suggest that Nick Kent's was a different kind of drug-taking, in that Nick Kent was a heroin addict for many years, and, and that is a physical and psychological addiction and I mean Nick Ken's the era before mine actually slightly more than that actually you know certainly when he was writing about the Stones in the early 70s um mine was related to mental health disruptions shall we say and I would say that Although, and there were different kinds of drugs. Mine was sort of ex- the accelerants. Mm-hmm. Speed. And speed, yeah. speed, speed, then, then that kind of fell out of favour. And then I, you know, I upgraded to cocaine. Co- I don't know if I said cocaine. 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 <laughs> and, um, and, yeah, I'm, never, I'm not sure, Johnny, that, that drugs were ever quite the point for me. Book hinges, the, the autobiographical aspect of the book hinges on a chapter in which my father dies. Yeah, which is a horrible. Um, I wish no one went through what you went through because it is. Well, it's well, must have been cathartic I, I, to write down. And well, I, I quite enjoyed it. And 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 the, the the chapter is, I I think, or at least I hope, is slightly breezier and fleeter of yeah. thoughts yeah, yeah. than. And the circumstances of his passing might, might have you believe. I've, I've, I've turned it, I think, into quite the rip-roaring yarn. And I think that's the, the thing about the book that I tried to do with it. I tried to make it quite an energetic read rather than something that was a, a pre- although it's got all sorts of very stark stories in it of other people and myself. I wanted it sort of to kind of zip along and, 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 and to kind of have a certain energy to it but because of, of of what happened with my father or maybe even because i got money from his estate because he, he'd, he'd taken early retirement that day and he had quite a generous divorce settlement in his, his favor so i got you know a a, a not quite life-changing but a, a significant you know inheritance the trauma of the incident itself and actually the latitude that financial settlement allowed me gave me the opportunity to to, to wreak havoc upon myself uh, and that's where that sort of came from and i was going um, to say the two dozen therapists that you've seen that's a lot of yeah. inheritance as well because it would have been private well no they did all that on the nhs that's how <laughs> that's how kind of that, yeah that's kind of how serious things got Thank i was you. i was i was i was propelled into the into the startled arms of the of the um of the state mental health services i mean there were you know there were times i, I write about this in the book some weeks or months were okay where there wasn't really much going on and then it would just Something a flick. It would be as if a switch had been flicked, and suddenly it was just the the it's like an an unquenchable unquenchable desire for chaos that exhibited itself in in you know drugs and and always drugs to start with, and then and then alcohol to kind of bring me down, 
and legal highs when they were available. And it was just very, very life-threatening at, at, at times. I, you know, there's no doubt about that. I would sit with therapists and sometimes, you know, therapists at, at what's known as the crisis crisis team therapist, which is when things get really serious. Sometimes I've been, oftentimes I've been hospital because I damaged myself. One of the things that I, I noticed was that I, I just, I could not, I was not able to find anyone, or, or perhaps it was my own powers of explanation, that was able to say to me, all right, this is, this is what's happening to you and this is why it's happening. It was really very much a case of, oh gosh, this is a really unusual case. Because I would sort of then snap out of it. And, and, you know, and I remember there was one period of, it was a good sort of eight or nine years of chaos. I, I, just, had a, I just had an eight-month spell of being completely normal in the midst of all this. And I thought, oh my God, I've got this, this is fixed. I've fixed myself or I've been fixed. And then it just started up again. And no one quite understand what was wrong with me. I mean, if I was speaking about someone else, I'd, I'd put the word wrong in quotation marks there, but, but it's my, myself, so I'll say what was wrong with me, which was quite disheartening that, that, that it seemed to be so difficult to identify, you know, and thus to fix, really. And, and, and it was just weird. And, and at the start of the book, I identify all the sort of um, disorders that, be, that have been applied to me, rapid cycling, uh, bipolar affective disorder, uh, personality dysregulation. I'm struggling to remember them, Johnny. And, They're and, in the book. And I, and, and, I, and I do so, and then I return to it later in the book and say that I, I find it unhelpful to, to, to wonder how many of these actually apply to me. A lot of them were guesses. So everything is as under control as it can be. Oh, yeah. Now, now, yeah, I mean, sort of, I, I think I just sort of got tired. I, I, don't, I don't know what happened. I don't know how I got well. I'd started to get well before I met girlfriend who then became my fiance, who in December became my wife. Which congratulations. Thank you very much. Married at the fourth time of trying, thanks to you know what. I think the only nailed on diagnosis that, that from my lay person's eye that I would absolutely say is bang on nailed on is impulse control disorder. And I have to watch that. You know, I've got to keep an eye on that. And I just thought, Do you know what, it's, it's, it really is time to cut this out now. Because if I don't, I'm, I'm going to die, you know, and, and, and that prospect didn't perhaps frightened me as much as it might have done. Certainly, I was certainly quite philosophical about it, actually, because it's quite hard work doing that to yourself, you know? It's, 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 not, it's not much fun. So but like, it was sort of a case of, well, at least this would stop now, you know? It takes a lot of work. After each episode, it took a lot of work to put, you know, kind of flat back together my, m you know, my, my mind back together. It was, it was quite... It was an extremely grueling process. And so I thought, well, there's, there's, I guess I thought, there's just, you know, there's two paths you can take here. We're at, we really are at a T-junction or a fork in the road. You can either just stop being alive or you can, or you can just kind of, you know, put some work in, some proper work in and, some, and a bit of discipline and just learn to get 
better. And that's that's what I did. The, 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 the timeline identified as, as in the book is for the time that the book was published. So it's been about three years. And the book is Bodies, Life and Death in Music by Ian Winwood, writer for Kerrang! And how do you say the title of that magazine? I don't say it quite as theatrically as that, Johnny. Uh. Uh, Kerrang! Yeah, it's Kerrang. I used to watch, 20 years ago, when uh, I was studying for GCSEs, I would relax on a Saturday night with the Kerrang! music television channel. And for about a year that I watched it, Tenacious D's song, Tribute, was effectively the number one most requested video. This was just before YouTube came up. It was the golden age of music television channels. And Kerrang! had launched one. And so I grew familiar with the Alien Ant Farm, Sum 41, Limp Biscuit, that ah, era wow. of rock and roll music. Lost Profits, I listened to because they were a chart act. I am trying in this music library, for which you get your music library card with Lemmy uh-huh. on it. Uh, I'm going to give it Thank to you with you. Lemmy on it for reasons that will okay. become clear if you read the book, Bodies. Um, this story about Ian Watkins... Uh, and also the the rest of the band lost profits. Um, you have to look evil in the face for to write about these characters and and this story. Obviously, because of what happened, it's too horrible to say, but it remains the story. I think the stat was Coldplay, Muse, Bullet from My Valentine, Lost Profits, and one other Muse. Did I say Muse? Yeah, um, uh, Arctic Monkeys. Arctic lost Monkeys profit. were the other. Yeah. The five acts who sold 500,000 albums in America and are British and in rock, and no one else has done that. That's right. Um, Um, Sorry, Johnny. No, there's not really a question. It's just, please reflect upon what you wrote. Well, the thing about the book is, as well as my own uh, autobiographical, uh, you know, the memoir aspect of the book, um, it features contributions from it from from numerous people who agreed to speak with me, and I didn't go for the most famous that I could that I could think of. I went for, uh, and, and it contains extracts from my files as a working journalist as well that illustrate the point. And um, some of those people are very famous, but the people that I wanted to see, talk to, I thought, oh, you know, th- th- this is this is a story that will help illustrate what it is that I'm hoping to write about. So Frank Turner is in there, Simon Neal from Biffy Clyro, you know, an academic, a, a, a psychoanalyst, psychotherapist. I can never remember what the term is. She, she, Dr. Charlie Howard, she was absolutely terrific. I wanted to write about The Lost Prophets, which for anyone who doesn't know, their singer Ian Watkins was in twenty the year Johnny thirteen at the end of twenty thirteen I think was jailed for twenty nine years but actually probably thirty six years before his parole comes up for the most heinous the most heinous imaginable uh, offences against children um, and journalistically that's that's. That's a, gosh, I sound very ruthless here. That's journalistic gold dust. That is my thinking in writing. It wasn't in any way, in any in a, in any way as, as as mercenary as that. 
it was that I thought that I had found an angle to this story. Again, that's very industry term. Uh, that perhaps had been underappreciated, which is that there were six people in Lost Profits. If you are willing to accept, as I am, by the way, that five members of the group had no knowledge of what Watkins was getting up to, I make the point in, in the book that, that, that they shouldn't need saying, but let's say it anyway, the principal victims of Watkins crimes were the children involved and, the, and the, the children who were on the images that were found on his laptop. That is That needs to be stated clearly. But beyond that, there are lives that are warped and distorted and, and scarred forever by what he has done. And if one is willing to accept that the five, five other music, music makers in the band I had no knowledge of, of, of his activities, and, and as I apologise for me repeating myself here, I absolutely do accept that. Then they too are, are, are Watkins victims yeah. in in a, in, a, in a different way. And also, I had a personal angle in the story because I was the the first person, certainly for, at Kerrang, to write about the Lost Prophets when they were. At the very, very start of their rise, let's let's say that. And I sort of wrote about them for you know a good twelve years after. I make clear in the book that I'm not particularly a fan of the music. Actually, I don't mind the music. I never liked Watkins singing very much, to be honest with you. Which is, I think that that probably tells you something about what he was in the band. Well, he it's not his voice. It's he's it's he's. My- He's pretending to be a famous rock star from the Sunset Strip. He's pretending to be Scott Weiland. I think he's pretending to be to be Mike Patton from Faith No More. That's that's what I always heard when I listened to it. Oh yeah, because he screams. Band, yeah, you're right. Yeah. And I just, I and, and this is this is, I mean, it's quite. This is better on the page, Johnny, because because, but I, in it, I tell a story about being on a tour bus with the Lost Prophets about. Five or six weeks after the after the Twin Towers came down, so October uh, two thousand and one, and they just supported Muse in Vienna. I won't spoil the story. No, the story is uh, just un- it's very good writing. It's someone who's done uh, this yeah, for thirty years. So that's that, that's lovely of you yeah. to say. It, it was in there. I put the story in there to show that before he started to become. Even without knowing what he was doing, he had started to become a deeply unpleasant and confusing person. Um, but in the years before that happened, and there was a good five or six years before that happened, at least to the naked eye, at least to, to, to someone who knew him, he was part of a band that were more fun than almost any that I have encountered. And that story is meant to illustrate that fact as a means of, God, no, not, not mitigating what he did, but as a means of, of showing you know, what it was that was thrown away, this, this fun they had together, this sense of being a, a really tight-knit, group of friends who had known each other since they were young children but something happens in that story where Ian delivers a monologue to someone in the story that I realise now was indicative very deeply indicative of, of his, his 
powers of charm and persuasion. And and when the news of what he had done broke, I thought back to that incident and thought, yeah. And it wasn't as perhaps as great a surprise. The reason, and I say this in the book, and this is the reason that the... And Stuart Richardson, who was the band's bassist, spoke to me. It was the first time he'd spoken about this, with the exception of an article in the Sunday Times, but even then, the band weren't very forthcoming. You know, he, he agreed to speak with me. And actually, I got an email from him, because I showed him the chapter mm-hmm. yeah. when it was finished. Not to give him copy approval or anything like that. Just to legal make that clear. Uh, No, not even to legal it, just to make sure that I'd represented him fairly. Mm-hmm. And he, he was very moved by the chapter, and then a couple of weeks later, he sent me a uh, an email saying, "Actually, I've decided to have to have to, he'd, ne- he'd never had therapy about about this." And he said, "He said I've decided to to, to, to have some therapy because I've not dealt with this properly." So I, I felt that I felt proud of him for that, and I felt that the chapter played a part in that. What was the impetus for that? I'm, I'm, I'll take that. I'm, I'm, I'm happy with with that. But the reason the group didn't spot it, and this is really the reason that it's included in the book, is because there were just so many other, what I describe in the book as routine ruinations behind which he could so easily hide. You know, what? what's wrong with Ian? Oh, you know, he's got lead singer disease, which is, you know, when you become kind of, crazy narcissistic and lead singers often have a measure of that in themselves anyway people that just stand up with a microphone rather than you know rather than a a jack white or a james hetfield with a guitar oh you know he's on drugs oh it's you know there's just so many the industry can be so uh, uh, extreme and and distorted deeply dysfunctional behavior deeply troubling behavior is normalizing in some cases actually downright normal and that's when i say i'm sure they didn't know about it i'm sure they didn't um is because there were places for him to hide behind other people's stories you know drugs alcohol you know loose living uh, narcissism these are these are pretty common these are common pretty common extremely common pitfalls for music industry and because of that no one noticed that he was doing something uniquely vile. And that's the reason the story's in there, Johnny, because it's, his behavior was anomalous. You know, everyone around him, myself included, I, I'd sort of drifted apart from the band simply because he was just so unpleasant to deal with. Impossible to interview, sly, leery, downright weird. But I thought, you know, on the two occasions that I'd interviewed him in that state... The last time was, you know, about six months before he was arrested. So he was, you know, when he was up to this stuff, you don't think, oh gosh, I wonder if he's, if he's a, you know, a committed and, and deeply, even by the standards of the paedophile, a, a depraved paedophile. You just think kids on drugs that, you know, the guys on drugs, the guys, you know, he's just fallen prey to what other people in the music industry do. Uh, but it wasn't that. And that's the reason the story's in the book, John. Uh, the book is Bodies, Life and Death in Music, out on Faber and Faber. Yeah, and posh. The dead posh for a kid from Barnsley yeah. to meet Faber that's and right. Faber. 
But I suppose Ian McMillan's got books out on Faber and Faber. There is a tradition of fine Yorkshire wordsmith, Simon Armitage, the Poet Laureate. Um, yeah. Who, who is definitely on Faber. You, you are on the same label as him. We are. I mean, there's the writers from Barnsley. We have Joanne Harris, yes. uh, up from Shockwa, of course. We have the aforementioned uh, Ian McMillan, the Bard of Barnsley. Uh, and there are others here. Apologies to, to anyone listening that's all right from Barnsley that I'm forgetting. His son, Andrew McMillan, his poet. That's right. And the great Barry Hines, of course, who wrote yeah. a castle for the name, which then became Kez, who was actually on Barnsley Football Club's books. He never made the first team, but he made the reserve team. So if I can one day, if I can one day be considered even in the you know the same postcode as those writers, I'll take that. Well, I'm afraid you are because this book it's uh, how many K's are given to an album in Kerrang that is an essential listen. Five, five it's, K's. It's a five K book. Oh, uh, <laughs> It is well, that's, sweet. that's sweet of you to say, John. It is incredible no one has written this book before. There are guest appearances from Frank Turner. There's um, a band called Creeper. Trent Reznor gets a mention early on, and he says that he's got these psychotic, psychiatric personality disorders. And then you, as the writer, think, well, of course he's going to tell me that, because it's about him. The writer is just the <laughs> conduit for the message. So over 30 years, 29, 30 years... You must have broken so many exclusives, one of which pivoted around some kind of monster, um, which you put as a kind of year zero for mental health conversations in rock music. And I imagine because 20 years is coming up since St. Anger, the album, and some kind of monster, the film, there will be a lot of conversation about what has changed between 2003 and now, because James Hetfield went into rehab a couple of years ago. This, the demons are still there. Yeah, that was. I can't tell you what happened with that story, but it's not with him going into rehab in 2019. Um, but it wasn't the story that you think it is. I can't say anymore. I really can't. All right. Well, we'll fill in the, the details. Whereas in 2003, it got to the point that Lars Ulrich said, I don't know who you are, James. That's the, the beginning of the first chapter where I was flown to San Francisco, myself and a Kerrang photographer by the name of Paul Harris, one of my dear friends. He comes out really Paul, well in this book. I hope he writes as well. Yeah, despite my best efforts, he comes out really well. <laughs> and it was, you know, they, they, they hadn't been interviewed for a couple of years. They hadn't toured for three years. No one quite knew what was going on. They'd lost their bass, or their bass player had left. They hadn't lost him. They didn't leave him at, you know, Petrol service station or something, um, and it was like, what's going on with Metallica? So I, we were flown out, Harry's and I. It was a, it was a world exclusive, you know, proper world exclusive. You mentioned the the, the Trent Reznor uh, example the instance, which is which is in the in the introduction. Here's a little something I'll tell just to you, just to the listeners. I haven't told anyone this, Johnny. The, the the book is split into side one and side two, and it's they're, they're not chapters; they're tracks, and the tracks are songs from from various different albums, uh, various different artists: uh, Talk Talk, Madness, Wolf Alice X, Elvis Costello, Slayer is one of them. So the eighth track on the in the book corresponds with the eighth track on, on the on, on the album that it was taken from, if you see what I mean. Oh yes, I so, see. 
Yes. Yeah. So, so, so I had no end of fun driving myself crazy trying to, you know, get a get a coherent uh, track listing together. Uh, anyway, that, so that, that's a little that's a little uh, Easter egg. Is that what they're called? Little Easter egg. Yeah, a little Easter egg. For instance, oh. track three, beautifully unconventional. That's track three of the Wolf oh. Alice record, isn't it? That's the track three da, of the da, Wolf da, Alice. Da, 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 da. Yeah, now I know it. Yeah, yeah. And, and Happiness is Easy, which is the opening uh, chapter, opening track. That's the first track on Talk Talk's Color of Spring album. So you know, there we go. Okay. That's just a little thing. But in the introduction, Trent Reznor tells me something without me asking him what it is, and it's this juicy tidbit about him being sectioned in a psychiatric care facility after taking too many drugs. And it's an, that's an unavoidable trap. I, I cannot leave that out of a piece. And in fact, I can't... It, it, but at the same time, he wants that piece in there because I didn't have to seek that information out. He told me that information. So in a sense, I am corrupted there, and that's kind of part of the problem that I, I look to examine in the book, the, the, the way that this information is presented, the way it's presented, just sort of be, you know, the press, be, in the way that political journalists are, the press, the music press being used by someone who has a story to sell, to, to tell. Yeah, quite right. That, Although, nowadays, uh, I think this is the Beyonce model, if you but, have, if you're a major, major star, you can use Netflix. Yeah. Netflix will pay you money because they know people are going to watch a insert your own star, Justin Bieber, Taylor Swift, Olivia Rodrigo is wow. doing one because they don't they don't need the music press because it's the power of the image in this era yeah. that sells, as you know. This is this is well, a new that, Well, that sort of happened when I went to see Metallica. Metallica, I dig, did dig the story out. For anyone, oh, I, did, I dug it out as best I was able. I wasn't aware of the full details. And no one really was until the film, Some Kind of Monster, was released, which is, you know, universally recognised as one of the great rock films. Mm, could of, have been of better. Time. Could have been better. Well, with me in it, do you mean? Yes. I was filmed. I was the first journalist. There's like about 500 journalists in that film. I was the first one that they filmed, and I had to sign a release form and India, yeah. have my photograph taken. Like I wasn't nervous enough. I'm interviewing Metallica, who I first went to see when I was I was 15. I swear to God, I've got a T-shirt on the on the washing line outside. I'm looking at it's a Metallica T-shirt. I'm a 50 year old man, so no, so it was a big deal to me. And it was it was like we arrived at this you know this giant compound uh, that the band. Um, rehearse out of uh, and, and make their music and it's called HQ it's in San Rafael California and it's just a, for a, it's just a mind-blowing experience the kind of the, the, the apparatus required for a band of that size Pearl Jam sort of have a similar compound as well up in up in Seattle yeah. and it was like oh my god this is, and then it's it, they said yo can you um do you mind if we film your interviews that one of the directors Jill Berlinger and it was like, hang on, what? Why are you filming my interviews? And I had to sign a release form. And so not only am I interviewing each member of Metallica set individually, but I had a director, a camera person, and a boom mic operator by my side, which, interestingly enough, it's quite easy to tune them out. Once you get going, I forgot that they were there. And I could kind of see how 
you know, if, if you're the subject of a fly in the wall documentary, you look at them and think, why on earth did someone on camera say something so stupid? It's because they've forgotten that the camera's there. It's just very, very easy to do. And so I said to Jill Bellinger, you know, and they didn't know if it was going to be a film at that point. They thought it was going to be, the most likely thing that it was going to be was a, a, a television series but in, in the style of the Osbournes, which is incredibly popular at the time, mm-hmm. that Ozzy, the Osbournes, Ozzy Osbournes family. Ozzy makes and, a cameo in the book, by the way, obviously. He makes a cameo in yeah. the book, yeah. And... Um, and, I, and, um, and then he said, oh, yeah, but it might be a film. So when I found out it was going to be a film, obviously I told everyone, everyone that I'd ever met and, you know, uh, that I was going to be in this film and it would be another pictures and, I'm, you know, I'm playing a pivotal role in it. And I'm, it, it manages to tell its story without me. And, uh, and, and I'm not even in the DVD extras. And oh. I did actually, I did actually bring this up with, with Lars, the, the band's drummer, uh, and he, I discussed with him the possibility of there being a, a, an Ian Winwood only edition of some kind of monster. Um, but in a way, I'm glad because I was about four stone heavier than I am now when I did those interviews. Well, so I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I wish to. I wish to be immortalised in that way. The next time Metallica have, well, it may be a while, have product to promote. Lars is one of the great talkers. I would love to sit down with Lars Ulrich and talk tennis and talk about um, metal because he is one of the stars of the genre and you've written about, you call it heavy music. You are part of the rebellion and you are one of many Kerrang! writers from across the country who converge uh, on... Well, on the office, you all work in this office and there are some war stories from that office, some quite horrible ones. And we haven't got time, although I'm sure you will bring this up in promotion for the book, to go into the Me Too and the the bum steer for women in rock and roll music, this kind of corrosive masculinity there. Uh, We're about 10 minutes to the end of the chat. So I just wanted to ask, what would you be doing if you weren't a writer? Gosh, you, you, that, this, is, this is a moment to, to be noted. I'm lost for words. Ah, I thought you would be. Actually. It, it, it was, I honestly don't know, because it was the only thing that I wanted to do from when I, from, from the point at which I, I, was, I ever wanted to do anything. All I wanted to do was be a writer. In fact, all I wanted to, wanted to do was write for Kerrang, actually. There is a short section, short and I hope humorous section in the book, where I have a year out of music journalism and I work in a bookshop and I, and I don't mind it apart from the fact that I am possibly measurably the world's worst bookseller. I just could not, no matter how hard I tried, I just could not figure out what my job responsibilities were, how to execute my job, my, the responsibilities of my job. So I'm not sure I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I'm equipped for anything. I earn my living as, as, as a writer and I'm not, I don't want to give it the, the, the big, in fact, at no point in the book do I, do, I, do I use the term working class to describe myself because I, I'm, not, I'm not sure it's entirely correct. But it is from, a, I am from a modest background. I describe it as a red brick background at, at one time. So I, I had no in, do you know what I mean? I didn't know anyone. I didn't get a leg up 
from anyone. Obviously, once you you're sort of in the game, then you can kind of make alliances and people, you know, if they like your stuff, will will you know recruit you and you get to write further. But I didn't have anyone to get me into the game. And so once I was in there, I'm not sure it could be done. I make this point at the end of the book. I'm not sure if I was 19 now I could do this. I'm not sure the revenue stream is there for people to earn a living doing this if they are not already established. Or if, if, if it were to happen, it's, it, 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 the, the person would be extremely fortunate and would be the exception that proves the rule. When I started at Kerrang, which was, which was just, just over 20 years ago, there were a whole kind of group of us that earned our living. I mean, Karang paid me a retainer, which which helped. So I, it was effectively a wage. But even the people who weren't on that could, could earn a living doing this. Those, those days are gone. Those days are gone now, which is how music journalism has changed. But given that I am a writer and I've been a writer, you know, for all of my, what I laughingly refer to as my adult life. But, but given that I am a writer... And, and I guess an established writer, it's actually easy. It's actually fairly easy to continue doing this. Um, it doesn't take a lot. You know what I mean? I don't need the giant setup that a band has. I just need a computer and some commissions. And, you know, every now and again, I'll, I'll write a book. Um, so I haven't been required to think about it. In all honesty, the answer to your question is I truly, I do not know what I would be. Now, that's a good alternative title for this book, Bodies, Life and Death in Music. And I'll, I'll tie together, Ian Winwood, a couple of the strands uh, that you write about in this book. And by the way, uh, you are the man who described Chumbawamba as the remarkable success story of the music industry. And it's very hard to deny that a band of... Hang on, how, what were they described? Anarchist vegans? They were that bad. Uh, yeah, an anarchist collectivists, uh, vegan yeah. revolutionaries. You know, there are all these things. Only Cold, in the last 25 years in the United States, only one Coldplay album, only one album, and the album's by Coldplay, and, and that's the only Coldplay album that did it, has sold more albums in the United States by British act, by British guitar act, than Chumbawamba. That is extraordinary. Uh, it went triple platinum, triple platinum. Well, no, 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 that's it's because, and I know this because Chris Malamfi, who I will hope to get on this show, um, outlined that there was a war on the single. The record companies wanted people to spend 20 bucks on an album. That's right. And so Chumba Wumba, they may have told you this, actually, you couldn't buy the single. The single was at radio, right. but it wasn't eligible for the Hot 100 because they wanted people to buy the record, which also includes that's the right. song Amnesia. But that is now my favourite fact. My other one is, what is the best-selling grunge album of all time? Uh, I'd imagine it's 10. Yes. Yeah. You see, I knew you'd know that. 16 million, yeah. never mind only sold 11 million. You know, I might have read that in Kerrang. Um, yeah. Badgley, I should ask you, uh, what are your current commissions for either Kerrang or The Telegraph? What are you working on before Easter? Before Easter, I am writing a... Uh, this is another good thing about the Telegraph. Let me just write about cultural stuff, if, if, if it occurs to me. Uh, I am writing a love letter to Simon Mayo and Mark Commode's film podcast. Here, here. Here, here. The BBC radio version. Uh, I am reviewing uh, for the Telegraph Royal Blood at the O2 next week. Uh, as well 
This week I reviewed Placebo's forthcoming eighth album for Kerrang. Um, I've had a quiet week. Last week, uh, Johnny, I read the audio book. I narrated the audio book of, uh, of, of Bodies. And um, so the week before that was truly hectic because I had to clear my decks of all the writing. To, uh, and um, narrating the audiobook was it was peculiar but extremely enjoyable. But I have to say, I mean, I'm not I'm not here to give the listener the hard sell uh, or you know to to, to to sprinkle you know razzmatazz on, on on my own project. But I will say this: had I not put in the hard yards writing the book last week, narrating the audiobook would have been truly miserable experience because there is ain't, there ain't nowhere to hide when you're in a recording studio for four days care slowly and carefully reading your own prose out loud having to go back if you make even the slightest mistake yep. in pronunciation or miss a word out at that point i thought i said you know what it, it objectively it's 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 not my place to say whether the book is any good or not subjectively what I, I can tell you is I, I honestly can't do any better than that this is this is as good as I am able to be on the page correct and you will hear sentences such as the music oh. industry is a coalition of uneasy and poorly defined codependence and the music business celebrates terrifying behavior so if you like those kind of words put together in that order bodies life and death in music is for you You, Ian Winwood, could not do anything other than write. Simon Neal of Biffy Clyro can do nothing but play music. And he is one of the big rock stars who has done well in the States. But Biffy Clyro, who have been together for, I think, 30 years now. Uh, them and Nickel Creek, the, the bluegrass band, started very, very young. And the chapter of uh, Simon Neal. Do you do an Ayrshire accent at all in the book? Or do you do your uh, own? Well, when I was narrating it, no, I decided against doing the accents. You could have got him um, to do it. He would have been game. I don't know if he would, you know. Simon was great. Simon, Simon's chapter is the first chapter of the second side, so it's the, it's the sixth chapter, where I sort of set out the stall as to what is happening or what can happen in the... why something happens in the, in the industry rather than descriptions of... of, of you know, weird and unusual things and troubling things happening. I remember interviewing him the summer before last um, on the rooftop of a, of a, of a hotel in, in, in just next to the BBC in London, if anybody knows, you know, that, that part of town. And I said to him, well, Simon, I'm, I'm, I was about a month away from starting writing it. And I said to him, Simon, I'm, 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 gonna, I'm trying to write a book about how the music industry drives people mad. And he went, I'll speak to you. I'll, I'll talk to you. Technically speaking, I didn't ask him to be to be in the book. I was about to ask him, but I didn't actually have didn't to. Need to. Yeah. Uh, and his contribution... I, 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 the sections of my book that, that, that happen to be my favourites, that varies, you know, from read to read uh, and, and, you know, from week to week. But his is an exceptionally important contribution because he is someone who is in a band that is, as I make clear in the book, 
is as unified and as cohesive and as purposeful and actually as talented, more talented actually than, than, than almost any that, I, that I've come across. I've never seen a band that have got their, their stuff down tied to them, Biffy Clyro. And you're also any, able, sorry, you're also able to describe them musically what makes them good as well as a, a band. Well, okay. But, but even given that, two terrible things happened to them and something particularly terrible happened to Simon. So even a band that's got their, their, you know, their business locked down tight and are are close friends and are supportive, and there's only three of them, even they, you know, weren't spared the pitfalls of of, of the music industry. And, And through Simon's eyes, using Simon as my tour guide, I'm able to to, to, and he is able to to explain hopefully to the reader just what a strange and 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 and, and um, perilous actually place it can be if you if your eyes aren't aren't, aren't wide and your senses aren't clear. If I was you know, a commissioning editor, I would get him to write a book because you're always moving forward until you're not. That is kind right. of T.S. Eliot poetry. And he used to be the CEO of Faber and Faber. He used to be the MD. That's right. I think the book is tremendous. You describe at the end that live music is the closest thing to magic. And as I was reading today, uh, I had on a little known album by some upstarts uh, called No Sleep Till Hammersmith. You say it's the yeah. perfect rock album. It is almost an entirely alien world on record. Um, so, in as, and you, you've written a piece for The Telegraph, but briefly, uh, why should everyone now go and A, order Bodies, Life and Death in Music by Ian Winwood, which I think is out on the 21st of April. For four, uh, 21st of April, yes. Yeah. Not four weeks today, four weeks, a couple of weeks ago. Yes. And um, 21st of April it's out. I would like people to read it, I mean, obviously to read it, they'll need to buy it, and that that helps me as well. But I don't think that there's a book really like it. And also, I think because it is, you know, bearing in mind I am a writer, if I'm being honest, I think it's quite a, I think it actually, I think it's a a, a terrifically well-written book. And I can say that, because there were times during its its composition, and it went through eleven different drafts. So let me. There were times during its composition when it was a completely terrible book. So I have wrestled it from something that was terrible into something that is, I think, pretty damn good. And it's um, got a um, superlative from Frank Turner, who's written two books. So you're only halfway to his. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. And 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 as for No Sleep Till Hammersmith, I first heard No Sleep Till Hammersmith uh, when I was ten years old, and it might well be Johnny the very reason that I'm speaking to you today. Uh, it, that that it might have knocked my life into into completely different direction from from the one otherwise it might otherwise have taken. Um, it's the greatest concert LP. This is something that music journalists do. They say. It's the best concert LP of all time. I, it is the best concert LP that I have that I have ever heard, because there, there might be something better in it, but I haven't heard it. Um, it is the, the sound of purity and energy uh, and abandon 
and actually happiness. It's actually quite a happy album. The songs themselves are about the pursuit of happiness. And it is, it's not metal, it's not, it's rock and roll. It's a rock and roll record. It is the sound of rock and roll and it's purest and it's most unbridled. And hearing it for me, me hearing it when I was 10, my mum bought me, bought me the album when I was 10, bought me a T-shirt as well, actually, a motorhead T-shirt. That was my moment of, 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 of that was the same moment, the same sensation as, as, as when Springsteen saw Elvis on the TV or when, you know, people 20 years younger than me saw the Beatles uh, on American television. Uh, you know, or, or, or kids in the 50s heard Little Richard or, or, yeah. or Jerry Lee Lewis. It was that kind of feeling of just pure electricity. And it changed my life forever. And I've, 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 I've never heard it. Every time I hear it, I hear it the same way as I did when I was 10 years old. So that was, the, that was I, guess, I guess that is the gateway drug to the, to the, to the book that I've written. 